From PQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. My name is Joyce Carol Oates, and I'm going to be reading from my new book, A Widow's Story, a Memoir. The first chapter is called The Message. February 15, 2008. Returning to our car that has been haphazardly parked by me on a narrow side street near the Princeton Medical Center, I see, thrust beneath a windshield wiper, what appears to be a sheet of stiff paper. At once my heart clenches in dismay, guilty apprehension. A ticket? A parking ticket? At such a time? Early that afternoon I'd parked here on my way, hurried, harried, a jangle of admonitions running through my head like shrieking cicadas. If you'd happened to see me, you might have thought pityingly, that woman is in a desperate hurry, as if that would do any good. To visit my husband in the telemetry unit of the medical center, where he'd been admitted several days previously for pneumonia. Now I need to return home for a few hours preparatory to returning to the medical center in the early evening. Anxious, dry mouth, and headaching, yet in as aroused state it might be called hopeful. For since his admission into the medical center, Ray has been steadily improving. He has looked and felt better, and his oxygen intake, measured by numerals that fluctuate with literally each breath, 90, 87, 91, 85, 89, 92, is steadily gaining. Arrangements are being made for his discharge into a rehab clinic close by the medical center. Hopeful is our solace in the face of our mortality. And now, in the late afternoon of another of these interminable and exhausting hospital days, can it be that our car has been ticketed? In my distraction, I'd parked illegally? The time limit for parking on the street is only two hours. I've been in the medical center for longer than two hours, and see with embarrassment that our 2007 Honda Accord, eerily glaring white in February dusk, like some strange phosphorescent creature in the depths of the sea, is inexpertly still more inelegantly parked at a slant to the curb, left rear tire over the white line in the street by several inches, front bumper nearly touching the SUV in the space ahead. But now, if this is a parking ticket, at once a thought comes to me, I won't tell Ray. I will pay the fine in secret. Except the sheet of paper isn't a ticket from the Princeton Police Department after all, but a piece of ordinary paper, opened and smoothed up by my shaky hand, it's revealed as a private message in aggressively large block-printed letters, which with stunned, staring eyes I read several times, like one faltering on the brink of an abyss. Learn to park, stupid bitch. The next chapter I'm going to read is called I'm Not Crying for Any Reason. February 17, 2008. This morning at 7.50 a.m., arriving at the hospital, ascending in the elevator at the fifth floor, turn left to telemetry, breathless, hurrying, eager to see my husband, for always the first glimpse of a hospital patient in his room and his bed unobserved is fraught with meaning, carrying a hefty Sunday New York Times for us to read together, and at the farther end of the now-familiar corridor past the now-familiar nurse's station, there is room 541. There is Ray's bed, empty, just the stripped bare mattress. Mrs. Smith, your husband is in room 539. Just this morning he was moved. We tried to call you, but you must have left home. And so entering this room, which evidently I passed a moment ago without glancing inside, 
I am trembling so visibly that Ray wonders what is wrong with me. The blood has drained from my face. I am trembling in the aftermath of a shock as profound as any I've ever experienced. Or am I trembling in the aftermath of relief? For here is Ray in the new bed, in the new room, a room identical to the previous room with the identical bedside table. And on this table, the vase of flowers from friends. Ray's no longer wearing the oxygen mask, nor even the nasal inhaler, since his oxygen intake has improved, and there is the possibility of his being discharged from the hospital this Tuesday. He smiles at me and greets me. Hi, honey. But when I lean over the bed to kiss him, a wave of faintness sweeps over me. Suddenly I begin to cry, uncontrollably crying, for the first time since bringing Ray to the hospital. My face is contorted like a child's in the throes of an agonizing weeping. I am not crying for any reason, but only because I love you. So I manage to stammer to Ray, because I love you so much. And Ray's eyes swell too with tears. He murmurs what sounds like, something like this, I'll be knocked up for two months. Like drowning swimmers, we are clutching at each other. Someone passing in the corridor outside sees us and looks quickly away. Never have I cried so hard, so helplessly. Never in my adult life. And why am I crying? Is it purely out of sense of relief? Something like this. Knocked out for two months. Always I will remember these words, for this is how Ray assesses the situation. Pneumonia has interrupted his life. These days in the hospital and his weakened state will result in his editing work being slowed and delayed. He isn't thinking of the future in the way that I have been thinking of the future. He's thinking of the May issue of Ontario Review, the responsibility he bears to the writers whose work he's publishing, meaning a deadline, paying his printer, paying his contributors, mailing, distribution. He isn't thinking of anything so petty as himself. Maybe Ray isn't capable of thinking of himself in the terms of which I can think of him. Maybe no man is capable of thinking of himself in the terms of which a woman can think of him. Lean on me, Mr. Smith. That's good. Good. A physical therapist named Rhoda, a very nice woman, is walking with Ray in a corridor outside his room in the effort of exercising his leg muscles. Lying in bed for several days has weakened Ray's legs. It's astonishing how quickly muscles begin to atrophy. Early that morning, I had been encouraging Ray to push hard against my hand with his foot to exercise his leg muscles in this way, and he's pushed very hard, very hard, it seemed to me. But Rhoda's telling Ray that when he's discharged from the hospital, it won't be to his home, but to Merwick Rehab Center, not far from the medical center. Not only must Ray regain his ability to walk normally, he must regain his ability to breathe. How bizarre all this would have seemed to us a week ago, the shuffling man in hospital pajamas trying not to wince with pain, leaning heavily on a young woman therapist's arms. As Ray is walking unsteadily, leaning on Rhoda, but he is walking, I'm thinking, don't fall, please don't fall. In the hospital corridor, it isn't uncommon to see patients walking slowly, with or without therapists. All these days, hours, the IV line has been embedded in the crook of Ray's bruised right arm, dripping in the antibiotic that, like a magic potion in the Grimm's fairy tale, has the power to save his life. An attendant arrived to take Ray to radiology for x-rays. It seems that a secondary infection of mysterious origin, nothing to worry about, has appeared in Ray's left lung, which is to say, in Ray's previously uninfected lung. But is this bacterial too? How matter-of-factly this adjective rose off my tongue, bacterial. 
as one might say, infinity, light year, or a trillion, trillion stars, in the naive speech of the non-scientist. The smiling young attendant says with a bright smile she lavishes on all patients and patients' relatives who ask such naive questions. Ma'am, I don't know. The doctor will tell you. Which doctor, I wonder? Dr. I or Dr. B? Mr. Smith, can you tilt your head this way? That's great. One of the nurses is shaving raised jaws that have grown stubbly. Your husband is very handsome, Mrs. Smith, but you know that. Without his glasses, eyes closed, Ray does look handsome. His cheeks are lean and remarkably unlined for a man of his age. His forehead is marred by the faintest frown line, scarcely visible. As a nurse deftly shaves him and wipes away lather, I feel a sense of unease that Ray is becoming adjusted in the hospital setting, ever more comfortable with the eerie passivity such a setting evokes, as in Thomas Mann's The Magic Mountain, in which the young German Hans Karstorff arrives as a visitor at the tuberculosis sanitarium in the Swiss Alps in the decade before the outbreak of World War I, and, as if in a fairy tale, enchantment remains for seven years. After Ray is shaved, he returns to the New York Times scattered across his bed. The visit to radiology, he was gone for 40 minutes, seems to have no visible effect upon him. Both his arms are bruised, discolored from blood drawing. Even for a stoic, the constant blood drawing is becoming painful, but he doesn't complain. Ray isn't one to complain. And how does the remainder of the Sunday pass, languidly reading, talking, listening to choral music on the TV? Once listening to a recording of Mozart's Requiem Mass, Ray had remarked in that bravado way in which, when we were young, you might speak of dying and death as if you had not the slightest fear of it. Promise me you'll play that at my funeral. But you said the same thing about Verdi's Requiem Mass. I did? This was years ago, in another lifetime. Hospital vigils inspire us to such nostalgia. Hospital vigils take place in slow time during which the mind floats free, a frail balloon drifting into the sky as to infinity. In the late afternoon of Sunday, February 17, 2008, it's decided between us that I will go home early today and return early in the morning. How exhausted I am suddenly, though this has been Ray's best day in the hospital so far, and we're feeling almost exhilarated. I kiss my husband good night, my very nice husband with his smooth-shaven jaws. It's not an extraordinary leave-taking, for it feels so very temporary. I will be returning to this room so soon. Good night. I love you. February 18, 2008. The call comes at 12.38 a.m. Waking my from sleep, a phone ringing at the wrong time. There had long been a dread when my parents were alive and elderly in their house crises are escalating, of the phone ringing late at the wrong time. We all know this dread. There is no escape from it. For finally I've been able to sleep. We've been feeling so hopeful when I left the hospital. For the first time since Monday, I was able to shut my eyes and sleep. And now this feels like punishment, for my punishment for being complacent and unguarded, for leaving the hospital early. Stunned and dry-mouthed, I stumble from bed into the next room, which is raised dark and study where the phone is ringing. And when I lift the receiver, hello? The caller is hung up. A wrong number? Desperately, I want to think so. Almost immediately, the phone rings again, and when I pick it up, it's to hear the words I have been dreading since the nightmare vigil began, informing me that your husband, 
Raymond Smith, is in critical condition. His blood pressure has plummeted. His heartbeat has accelerated. The voice is asking if I want extraordinary measures in the event that my husband's heart stops. And I'm crying, yes, I've told you. I've said, yes, save him. Do anything you can. The voice instructs me to come quickly to the hospital. I ask, is he still alive? Is my husband still alive? Yes, your husband is still alive. And now I am driving into Princeton in the dark of night, onto Carter Road, left onto Rosedale. These country roads so well traveled by day are deserted by night. There are no street lights and no oncoming headlights. The roads are dark and snow-edged. I am thinking, this can't be happening. This is not real. This the very summons I've been dreading. I wish to think with a child's faith and magical thinking that if I dreaded the call, if I imagined the very words of the call, surely then the call would not come. This would not be possible. Though I am desperate to get into Princeton and to the hospital, I force myself to drive at no more than the speed limit. For it would be ironic, disastrous, if I have an accident at such a time when Ray is waiting for me. Through a roaring in my ears, the telephone voice has acquired a more urgent tone, almost a chiding tone. Still alive. Your husband is still alive. And aloud I say, He is still alive. My husband is still alive. In a voice of wonder, terror, and defiance, Ray is still alive. Such pathos and still. This past week I've fallen into the habit of talking to myself, instructing myself, encouraging myself as one might encourage a stumbling child. You can do it. You will be all right. You can do it. You will be all right. When I'd thrown on clothes in the bedroom to prepare for this frantic journey, this admonishing voice had lifted in a semblance of bemused calm. Be careful what you wear. You may be wearing it for a long time. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, visit kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.